So hey, this is Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon Poison Center, and it's Thursday, November 21st, one week before Thanksgiving, which means a week and a day before everyone goes crazy and buys lots and lots of toys this system if they haven't started already, because we're sitting around the table playing with all these toys that people have brought in, and what we're going to talk about today are holiday hazards from a variety of these toys. To start out with, I want to talk about an agency that's going to be mentioned in most, if not all, of these articles, which is the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And most people don't know much about it, so I just wanted to give some background. It's actually a pretty independent agency of the U.S. government. It was created in 1972 through an act called the Consumer Product Safety Act. And it reports to both Congress and the President, so there can be some conflicts there. But it's not really a subpart or a group of any other agency. And their scope is to regulate the sale and manufacture of over 15,000 consumer products. They're allowed to ban dangerous consumer products, issue recalls of products already on the market, and research potential hazards. And one of the ways it does this is they have a, a, a database, kind of like our surveillance database, called the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System, or NEISS, which is a random sample of 100 hospital emergency room discharge diagnoses where they extract injuries from products and they're able to follow up on those if they need to. So they've been around since 1972 and in 2007 was what was called infamously the year of the recall. Uh, the CBC imposed um, 473 recalls during that year, an all-time record high. Almost all of these were toys and children products and it led them to um, not a backlash against them, but actually the second part of their act, the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act, the next year in 2008, increased funding, increased staffing, allowed them to put strict limits on lead in children's products, require mandatory testing and certification of applicable products, and create a public database, which is available at www.saferproducts.gov, um, where you can look up all these products that are recalled. There's also this CPSC database, which is alluded to in several of these studies, which is www.cpsc.gov. So two places you can look to uh, find out about these products that have been recalled or in question. And as of a couple of years ago, they get about 30 safety complaints per day to their database. So they're kind of like a poison center for consumer products that are out there. So I wanted to start with I thought was a pretty cool but short article um, written about that same time during the year of the recall in 2007. And the article is called Resale of Recalled Children's Products Online, an Examination of the World's Largest Yard Sale. So what do you do if you have a product that's recalled? Well, in the old days, hopefully you took it to the dump and got rid of it. But nowadays, we have eBay. And this basically examines that. So they talk a little about the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission again, that how over oh, nearly a quarter of a million visits to the emergency room are due to uh, injuries associated with products and toys, including such uh, occurrences as suffocation, entrapment, asphyxiation, burns, poisonings, falls, and about 149 deaths per year have been associated over the last decade with nursery products for children under the age of five. Um, and many of these products have violated safety standards or they 
you know, have a substantial risk to the public, and they've been recalled. And almost every recall is associated with a press release, some of which have also been accompanied by some media attention. So it's not like you can say, I've never heard that this product was like banned. Um, the recalls of children's products have found to account for about 43% of total recalls announced by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And in the last decade, before this paper was written, so mid-2000s, uh, they had recalled over 60 million individual products or toys in an aggregate, um, which represent about 17% of total returns of things. So you can't resell these. You can't put them back in the shelves. You can't give them to the Salvation Army and expect them to resell them. But eBay is a little different, and I only bring them up by name as opposed to other auction sites because this study looked at eBay. Um, and um, CBC tried to promote something called the recall double check, which encouraged both the buyer and the seller to double check to make sure the product they were buying wasn't really a recalled product. So the authors of this study out of Dayton, Ohio, um, monitored eBay for a month, 30 consecutive days, and they looked for 141 products that they knew were targeted products that were already recalled. And they wanted to see, like, were they for sale? Um, you know, what about them? They looked at some interesting things like the number of bids and the selling price and other aspects about them. So during that month, um, they found 190 web-based auctions contained a recalled product, selling 144 items that were matched for model number or product characteristics. Um, in most of these cases, the products were manufactured um, after they were recalled that look almost identical, so it's always hard to tell if it's an old product or a new product, but they tried to manufacture by the date that it was on the market and the color and other things that might identify it. Of the 190 recalled products, 124 or 65% resulted in the sale. Of the unsold items, 5% um, of them were relisted during the observation period of 30 days. So if you can't sell it, try and try again. Uh, overall, 69% of the recalled items, you know, ended up being sold one way or the other on the auction. And then um, the products, they said, included things that included the products that might asphyxiate you. Some of them caused fires. Some of them caused pinching, bruising. And some of them were lead poisoning, a small number of those. They looked at where the product sellers came from. The vast majority were from the U.S., although the other English-speaking countries all had uh, three or four each, Australia, Canada, and the U.K. Uh, Twelve of the sellers out of this whole group listed multiple recalled pro products in different auctions. So they were just looking to unload all these recalled items. And um, sellers of the recalled items have been registered for eBay for a mean of um, nearly two years, so... It's not like they were just new at what they were doing. They were had been doing things for a while. And most of them had a positive feedback rating of 99%. So, I mean, <laughs> they delivered the goods on time. They just didn't tell you that there was um, a problem with them. So they conclude that, you know, this stuff is out there. You know, you have to be pretty sophisticated to figure out if they are um, a recalled product or not. Um, certainly these products show up in other places. Um, you know, there's websites you can go to, like recalls.gov, CPC website, and, and, you know, while we do a pretty good job of policing brick-and-mortar stores, we're not so good at the gigantic uh, flea market and the internet 
that is represented out there. So just as a precaution, during the holiday season, for those of you looking for a bargain, um, it pays to check and make sure that you're not dealing with a recalled product. So I'd like to talk about probably one of the least infamous toxicologically uh, products as far as opposed to a, a physical hazard. And it was also during that famous year, the year 2007, uh, where um, was the year of the recall. In fact, during that year, this toy was named one of the hot dozen top toys of the year, or the toy of the year in Australia. Mm -hmm. And to tell us all about that is our emergency medicine resident, Mark. Hi everybody, I'm Mark Dahman, one of the emergency medicine residents here at OHSU. And um, the paper that I'm covering today is, is called One for Butane Diol Content of Aquadot's Children's Craft Toy Beads. And it's from the Journal of Medical Toxicology. It came out in 2009 out of uh, California, Irvine. And uh, it was a collaboration between emergency medicine and the Department of Chemistry because there's a, a lot of heavy chemical work that was done here in analyzing the beads. So aqua dots, just to give some background, are basically a toy that you can lay out on a grid where the grid has little pegs on it or little spaces for the dots to be placed. And then when you apply water to the dots in whatever configuration you want to make, it seals the beads, it causes an adhesive, and they basically all the beads stick together. So you can make three-dimensional structures, planar structures, all sorts of different things out of these um, aqua dots. Um, so basically they were put out by Spinmaster, which is a, a company in Toronto, Canada, and they're a very, very popular toy. They had, uh, they were in more than 12 million craft kits and 8 billion beads were sold worldwide. Um, 4.2 million were distributed in the United States alone between April and November of, of 2007. So the reason they did this study is because the basically aquadots were in, implicated in some bad outcomes with kids who had or some kids that had taken them and they were recalled by the US Consumer Product Safety Commission in two, November 7th of 2007. Um, so what they did is they measured in these beads the concentrations of or the actually the contents of the beads, what the, if they had 1,4-butane diol or 1,5-pentane uh, diol, which are basically the two different things that uh, could be found in the beads. So what was supposed to be placed in the beads was 1,5-pentane diol. Um, and the hypothesis is that maybe this was, well, they know that it was replaced with 1,4-butane diol, which is a precursor to GHB, a date rape drug implicated in uh, lots of different things for other uses. Um, so the study was wanting to see, first of all, how much 1,4-butane diol is, are in these aquadot beads, and is there any of the 1,5-pentane diol in these beads? So they basically just dissolved the beads in water and measured, did some gas chromatography, NMR stuff of them, and they found no 1,5-pentane diol in the beads at all. They found none of it. Instead, they found 1,4-butane diol, and of weight, out of weight, it's 13.7% by weight of the beads. So each bead weighs about 80 milligrams or so, and 13.7% of that is um, this 1,4-butane diol. 
Um, so why does that matter? So we talked about 1,4-butane dial basically being converted to GHB, and then that's done by our favorite enzymes, alcohol dehydrogenase and aldehyde dehydrogenase. It can go to GHB, and then also to sodium 4-hydroxybutyrate from GHB. Um, and sodium 4-hydroxybutyrate is a drug that is used for cataplexy and excessive daytime sleepiness and narcolepsy. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So it's pretty interesting studies of the, of the actual patients that took these beads. So the amount of GHB needed for different sort of effects, it has a dose-dependent effect relationship. And these, basically from Irawid, um, on the website, there was these reports of at this dosage you get this effect, etc. So they used that. So they basically said 0.5 to 1.5 grams of this um, of GHB, pure GHB powder, would cause similar to one to three alcoholic drinks, mild relaxation and dizziness. One to 2.5 grams can produce positive mood changes and nausea. And then heavy doses, 2.5 grams and higher euphoria, disequilibrium, dis, dis and vomiting. And then between 3 and 5, it can induce a heavy sleep. Um, and the typical dose range for overdose is 5 to 10 grams. And this is from Arrowhead, um, so not any chemical analytical laboratory. Well, similar, you know, when they released Zyram as a narcolepsy drug, they did sort of a very similar dosing range. And that was, those numbers are pretty accurate, actually. So, in talking about what it would take for a kid these, to ingest enough to have a clinical effect with these, um, this study mostly dealt with the amount to cause an overdose. Um, and basically, the predicted dose would have to be 46 to 124 milligrams per kilogram. Um, of the dose. So here's a, a, a case that they had. Uh, a seven-year-old patient who suffered respiratory arrest and was endotracheal intubated for less than 24 hours said that she had eaten about 80 beads. Um, this case, which occurred in London, appears to provide the best estimate of number of beads ingested. Her estimated ingested 1,4 bead dose was 864 milligrams. Um, so they had to assume the weight here of 23 kilograms. I guess they didn't know the weight or didn't find it or something. But uh, basically, that's the 37 milligrams per kilogram. So it's below their predicted overdose dose, but very, but very close to it, approaching the 46. And patient had respiratory depression arrest and was intubated um, for that. So I kind of did some own num some of my own numbers to say what would it take? How many beads would somebody have to take just to get the mild effects, like the like consuming a few drinks of alcohol? So in a pack. There's 500 beads in the in these packs. About 500 beads. Um, so if you had a three-year-old child, and the average weight for a three-year-old is 15 kilograms, um, they would only have to consume 10 beads. <laughs> and these beads are very, very small. You said they weigh like 80 um, milligrams each, so they're very small. So there would be 10 beads to get that one to three alcoholic you know, drink effects. Um, and it'd have to be a, about a about a hundred to be the overdose effects in this in this child. So, um, so in in conclusion of their study, basically they showed that it, 
the aquabeads have 14% of their total weight is this 1,4-butane dione, which can be converted to GHB, and um, it was a very good thing that these beads were recalled. Yeah, no, it was uh, a bit of a disaster. Like I said, hope there was only a handful of cases. I don't think anybody died, but they certainly got, there was one that was intubated and quite a few that got sick. And we always say, oh, like, how many pills can a kid get into? These are all about the size of a, of a pill. And these kids that were young, eight, you know, 80 of them or 100 of them in a couple of these studies. So uh, kids, if they are moving fast enough, can definitely get into a handful of these. Um, I haven't seen anything like it back on the market, but we all have short-term memories, especially the toy manufacturers and parents, so I wouldn't be surprised if something like this pops up again. If they had just done it right from the beginning and used the 1.5 Penta mm. dial, they probably would have been just fine and yeah. it, they would be around today. But Well, you know, you can do it right or you can do it cheap. <laughs> Not yeah. So anyway, so that's sort of like our famous Tox Children's Christmas Disaster that's out there, toy disaster. Now, when you get stuff for Christmas, of course, it never comes with batteries, except for certain things. So we're going to delve into three articles um, with Allison, our medical student, talking about what has become a definitely an emerging problem, which is the button battery and how it's changed since the originally developed and designed and all the issues associated with those. So. Yeah, so I um, read three papers that talk about battery ingestion. They all have a little bit of overlap um, because one of their main contributors was Dr. Lidovitz, who's at George or uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Um, the first one that I'm going to talk about is called Preventing Battery Ingestions, an Analysis of 8,648 Cases. So just a little bit of background on battery ingestions. Um, there's been an emerging trend of using lithium batteries and these larger diameter batteries, the 20 millimeter uh, batteries, which have a higher likelihood of being lodged into the esophagus and therefore creating local tissue inflammation. Um, so the, this group of researchers wanted to look into how they could um, further analyze the data, therefore finding ways to, uh, for primary prevention of these ingestions. So what they did is they uh, looked at the National Battery Ingestion Hotline, and they looked at the years between 1990 and 2008. Um, and they found that during this 18 and a quarter year study period, there were 8,648 battery ingestions um, most of these were button batteries, and about 500 of them were the cylindrical cell ingestions like AA or AAA. Most of the ingestions were at the extremes of age, so between one to three years, and then also in the elderly. Um, and they found that uh, in those in kind of the, the middle years, they had a higher likelihood of being cylindrical battery ingestions. Whereas at the extremes of age, they had a higher likelihood of being um, the flat battery ingestions uh, or button batteries. Um, and then also males were uh, more likely to ingest cylindrical batteries. They wanted to look at the trends um, during this 18 or so year study period. 
And they found that while there wasn't really an increase or change in the frequency of ingestions, there was a significant change in the frequency of ingestions of lithium and button batteries. Um, so they found that between the years 1990 and 2008, there was a, um, I believe, 1%, let's see, uh, sorry, 6.3% increase of these uh, button battery ingestions. Let's see. Adults more often, uh, okay, sorry, they were looking at um, the battery ingestion scenarios as well. Um, they wanted to see where people were getting these batteries. So were they sitting out? Were they removed from packaging? Were they removed from things like remote controls? Um, and they found that about 45% of those of ingestions were removed directly from the product. 45% of them were removed from uh, or were just taken from sitting out loose or had been discarded. And then only about 6% were taken actually from the manufacturer's packaging. Um, and then interestingly, 3.3% uh, of the cases with a known source were in ingested um, from a entire hearing aid that had been swallowed. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then um, they also found that in children younger than six years of age, uh, the batteries were most often obtained directly from the product in 62% of cases. Um, and then in contrast, adults or people greater than 20 years of age were most often um, ingesting batteries that were just sitting out. So 80% were batteries sitting out. Um, they then looked at the most commonly intended uses of the ingested batteries. Um, and they found that 36% were intended for hearing aids, um, about 22% were intended for games and toys, and then that's followed by watches, calculators, flashlights. Uh, my favorite was for a bedwetting monitor. <laughs> um, and then, uh, let's see. So, okay, and then of 55 ingestions by children who are younger than six years and involving uh, 20 millimeter lithium cells intended for remote controls, 65% of them were obtained from the product. So this just goes to show that this would be a really good area for primary prevention is to avoid the ability of a child to obtain the lithium battery from the product. Um, specifically in remote controls. Uh, and then of all ingestions, about 15% of them were mistaken for pills. Um, of course, this was more likely to occur um, in the elderly. So um, they used an example of an elderly patient um, putting an ion battery into their mouth, maybe from like a pocket, and then... Uh, putting the actual pill that they were intending on taking into their hearing aid and not necessarily figuring out that they had ingested the battery until their hearing aid didn't work or it didn't fit in the hearing aid. <laughs> um, 
So they, they then go on to, after listing all these numbers, to, to discuss the implications of this research. Um, they talk a, a more about the advantages of lithium batteries, so why they're um, more prevalent nowadays. Um, they say that there's a, a longer shelf life, they're thin, they have a resistance to cold, they have a greater voltage and capacitance compared with other batteries. But um, due to the nature of the size of these batteries, they are the perfect size to lodge into a um, small child's esophagus and create local tissue damage. Uh, uh, in the past decade, 92% of identified batteries that were implicated in serious or fatal cases were 20 millimeter diameter lithium coin cells. So thus um, emphasizing the importance of avoiding these types of ingestions. Um, they say that typically um, if a battery goes into the stomach, it can be um, passed naturally and maybe followed up later on with serial x-rays, which we'll talk about in the next paper a little bit more. Um, they talk about three factors that have been implicated in general battery-induced tissue necrosis, not necessarily lithium um, coin battery tissue necrosis. Um, the first is the leakage of alkaline electrolyte. Number two would be pressure necrosis. And then the third one is generation of an external current that causes electrolysis of tissue fluids generating hydroxide at the battery's negative pole. Um, they point out specifically with lithium cells that they don't contain alkaline electrolyte, rather they obtain organic electrolyte, so the alkaline electrolyte is not an issue here. However, they do have, um, as I mentioned earlier, the higher capacitance and an ability to create much more current, um, therefore producing the more hydrogen or hydroxide as well as the, um, the ability to lodge in one space causes that hydroxide to accumulate in one single area, making more necrosis. Uh, they then go on to talk about um, more of the complications of this. So children who are younger than six years of age, 12.6% of those who ingested the 20 to 25 millimeter button batteries will experience serious complications or death. Um, so this is an important group to avoid ingestions in, as well as an important group to hire your clinical suspicion for um, any sort of serious injury. Um, so then they go on to provoke, um, propose different ways of prevention. Um, first, they talk about uh, checking and securing the battery compartment of all household products. Um, storing batteries out of outside of reach of children, uh, and then never leaving batteries sitting out loose, um, all of which I think are uh, pretty obvious when we uh, think about how to avoid these ingestions. But in order to um, really make this happen, they they propose um, different ways to educate the public. Um, they talk about how parents should be instructed to be especially cautious with the 20 millimeter lithium cell batteries. They start typically um, with a CR on their on the actual battery itself. A common designation is CR2032. Um, 
Let's see. And then they also go on to talk about um, about 62% of batteries were uh, that were ingested by young children were obtained from products. So they're really urging manufacturers of button battery powered products to secure the battery compartment um, much better. And that the manufacturers, again, should be especially vigilant when it comes to their products that use the 20 millimeter lithium batteries. Um, and then they, they point out some of the um, limitations to their study that, that the information is gathered by telephone consultations. And then they also say that there may be a disproportionate capture of more serious cases, but this may um, likely would strengthen their study because they would be focusing more on the hazardous ingestions. Yeah, I think the novel suggestion that they, they made, and again, convincing manufacturers to do it is a different story. They suggested that all devices that have a battery, in order to access the compartment that it's in, require two steps so a young child couldn't do two things simultaneously or that a tool such as a screwdriver or a coin to twist open a little hatch be recommended. And certainly there are devices out there that have that kind of thing, but there's so many, many more that you can just pop open the battery pack uh, uh, compartment of many things. There's a whole list of, of great scenarios. They went through great detail how people took these. Um, some of my favorites were ingested battery on a dare. They were performing a trick. Someone swallowed the battery to glow better or was trying to use their teeth to open the battery compartment or the battery pack. And you can go on and on with all things that we probably shouldn't be doing when taking a battery out of a device or out of its packaging. So that was sort of on the prevention side. Um, the next two articles really go a little bit over the epidemiology and perhaps the management, which is probably most important because we get lots and lots of calls in uh, the Poison Center regarding that. Yeah, so the second article is called Emerging Battery Ingestion Hazard uh, Clinical Implications. And it's also um, the primary author was Toby Lidovitz. Um, so I won't go into all of the numbers uh, in this study because really it's um, a lot of repetition from the last one. Um, but I will just again emphasize that there has been a 6.7-fold increase in the percentage of baton battery ingestions with major or fatal outcomes from 1985 to 2009. So the methods of this study, they looked at, uh, they used three primary um, sources of their information. They used the National Poison Data System um, with about 56,000 button battery ingestions reported to U.S. poison centers between the years of 1985 and 2009. They also used um, the same one as the last study, the National Battery Ingestion Hotline with about 8,600 cases. And then they looked more into more detail at 13 fatal cases and 73 major outcome cases. So um, just kind of pointing out a few of the numbers again with the um, change in diameter. So they have a nice graph here that I'm sorry you can't see, but <laughs> they have an um, upward trend in the uh, diameter of the ingested button cells. And then they also have an upward trend in uh, lithium button cells um, and then kind of downward trends in some other types or if not just staying the same in the other types. 
um, they point out that although clinically significant uh, outcomes occurred in only 1.3% of button cell ingestions during the 25-year period that they looked at, the percentage of cases with clinically significant outcomes increased 4.4-fold from the first three years to the last three years. And then focusing more on more the most serious outcomes, there was a 6.7-fold increase. So um, they wanted to focus on uh, outcome predictors uh, in this study so that they could uh, determine which patients would be more likely to have serious fatal outcomes. They found that there were no clinically significant outcomes observed with 15 to 18 millimeter cells. Um, and this was in uh, 33 major outcome or fatal cases with known diameter. They also found that age was an important predictor of severity. All fatalities and 85% of major effects occurred in children who were younger than four years. Um, and a major effect of death occurred in 12.6% of children who are younger than six years and ingested a 20 to 25 millimeter battery. So this is a really important group to look at for further monitoring. Um, they found that battery diameter of 20 to 25 millimeters was the most important predictor of a clinically significant outcome with an odds ratio of 24.6. This was followed by age younger than four years with an odds ratio of 3.2 and ingestion of greater than one battery. They found that 99.3% of 20 to 25 millimeter ingested button cells were lithium. So there's a high correlation between the size of these battery cells and the chemical in the, in the batteries. They also looked at um, new versus old cells. They found that new cells were 3.2 times more likely to be associated with clinically significant outcomes. And this would be because uh, a newer versus an older battery would be able to create a higher current and thus make more hydroxide for the local <coughs> tissue damage. Um, they also looked into um, why, or they looked into um, the diagnosis uh, of these cases, especially in the fatalities. So the 13 fatalities were identified in the most recent six years, and all of them occurred in 11-month to uh, three-year-old children. Um, only one ingestion was witnessed, and unfortunately, the diagnosis was missed by healthcare providers in seven of the 13 deaths. They say that this is likely because um, many of the symptoms are nonspecific, so a child may present with vomiting, fever, lethargy, poor appetite, irritability, cough, wheezing, or dehydration, um, all nonspecific symptoms that could really lead you down many different pathways for diagnosis. And likely, the patient may not receive imaging, um, especially of their esophagus. Um, they say that delayed, unanticipated, and uncontrollable massive bleeding occurred up to 18 days after battery removal. So this implies that just because we're monitoring a child for a few days in the hospital and we may remove the battery from their esophagus does not mean that um, they won't incur any serious outcomes. They then also looked to see how much time it took for um, the local tissue inflammation to really take effect. 
Um, they said that the battery was lodged in the esophagus for just two to two and a half hours in three of the major outcome cases. So this um, emphasizes that quick removal of these batteries is extremely important. So if you're practicing in a rural environment, it may be important to um, expedite the process as fast as possible. Um, they talk about the complications, uh, which I won't list all of them <laughs> because there's quite a list, um, but the most common are tracheoesophageal fistulas, um, other esophageal perforations, strictures, stenosis, which can um, require repeated dilations in the future, vocal cord paralysis, um, pneumoperitoneum, and then uh, spondylodiscitis, actually, if the if the negative um, portion of the battery is pointing towards the spine. They, they again highlight the, the three main mechanisms for um, battery damage and highlight again that uh, in these lithium batteries, it really is the generation of the elect, uh, external electric current that hydrolyzes tissue fluids and produces hydroxide at the battery's negative pole. Um, and the, the negative pole is important um, because uh, you can actually identify that in patients. Um, so they, they talk about how the negative pole is the more narrow um, side of the battery, and it's uh, typically the text on a battery would be on the positive pole, or there might also be a plus sign, which is helpful. But in your patients that... Um, the battery is inside of them and you're trying to find out which side you're act is actually more at risk, they suggest obtaining uh, x-rays, and they also talk about that in the next paper as well, but they suggest obtaining x-rays um, straight on and lateral. So the lateral x-ray in regard to the battery, you can actually look for a more narrow portion of the battery, um, although with the very thin ones, it may just appear like a coin. So they also suggest getting one straight on, like an AP or a PA view, whichever, and looking for um, what they call the ring sign. They also propose a mnemonic um, to remember that the negative pole is the, the bad pole, the three ends mnemonic, which is negative, narrow, necrotic. So you remember that the negative side is the narrow side, and that's the one that will cause the necrotic injury. Um, they wanted to know uh, if there were any um, systemic complications from this lithium battery ingestion, um, and they, they really haven't found any reports of that. There was a five-year-old with an ingestion that did have um, a positive serum lithium concentration, but there were no clinically significant outcomes from this. Um, they then go on to talk about the window of opportunity, again, emphasizing that less than two hours is the um, really the window of opportunity of when these batteries should be removed from the esophagus, um, and that hemorrhage can occur, um, uh, sorry, they said that hemorrhage occurred in 12 of the 13 deaths of delayed removal. So delays introduced late uh, introduced by late presentation, misdiagnosis, limited access to endoscopists, referral to a tertiary care facility, or concern about anesthesia induction after eating, undoubtedly contribute to the, severe, to the severity of complications. So this may not be the patient to wait eight hours until their 
uh, NPO to remove the battery. Um, they then they have this really great table, um, and so I would actually suggest looking at that if you can pull it up. Um, and it it outlines um, what to do if your patient comes in with a battery ingestion. And I think that this is a really good uh, table to look at on the spot. You don't have to read the entire paper at that time, but you can. Um, it provides you with the National Battery Ingestion Hotline number as well, who would, um, I'm sure, help you through this table. Um, but I would say the main take-home points from this is um, if a battery ingestion is known or suspected and your patient um, is less than 12 years of age uh, and they're greater than, or they're greater than 12 years of age, and the battery is greater than 12 millimeters, get an x-ray immediately um, and do not wait for symptoms. However, if the patient is greater than 12 years of age and the battery is less than 12 millimeters, um, as long as they're asymptomatic and there's no pre-existing esophageal disease and there's only one battery ingested, no magnet ingested, and their caregiver is reliable, um, then you can ma manage at home following either the stool or getting serial x-rays later. So I think for, you know, for the emergency department, because these are kids who come in and parents say something like, I think my child swallowed a battery and, they, and you look at them at triage and they look fine. I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these people just get sat down and ignore it. And really, time is of the essence. Mm -hmm. these, bat these kids can be completely asymptomatic. They may not be complaining of trouble swallowing or even any pain. Um, so they really have to get a bat an x-ray right away. And if you find a battery in the esophagus, um, you really sh should refer them as quickly as possible to a pediatric center where they can endoscope them. And that's hard because it's usually only at these pediatric tertiary care facilities, which, you know, maybe one or two in a, in a big western state like ours uh, that can uh, take care of it. Um, you know, they give you some size comparisons, although they tell you with an x-ray, you really can't match it up, but the, this three volt, 20 millimeter battery is exactly between the size of a penny, which is 19 millimeters and a nickel, which is 21 millimeters. Mm -hmm. But because of the sometimes magnification, the way you get these x-rays, you can't say, oh, it's just a nickel or it's just a penny or parents don't know. You really have to get the x-ray done and, and move quickly to get that, the battery out. And, um, I mean, we at the Poison Center, we get these calls. We really have to push them hard to get the patient transferred expeditiously. They don't need to wait for a, if they're not choking or gagging, they can probably go in the parent's car up to the <coughs> tertiary pediatric center where hopefully the team has been warned and prepped to get them ready to um, uh, scope them, which is really the, the main key point on, the, on this algorithm. And again, uh, that and then there was a task force in, generated for the Pediatric Otorhinologic Society. I'm not sure why it wasn't done by the Gastric Society, uh, Gastroenterology Group, but essentially going over many of these cases. And if you want to look at that article, the same algorithms there, including some interesting uh, color photos of a esophagus that's necrotic from damage and x-rays of pennies versus batteries and what they, they look like. Um, so again, during the, uh, and these are all Safe Kids program, which Tanya's worked with before, is, is one of the big things, uh, has been involved in, in promoting safety with these devices. But these devices are out there, 
everywhere and uh, we need to be aware of them and really no delay is disaster in, in these cases. The next topic I want to talk a little bit about is lead because that comes up every Christmas for as long as I can remember, uh, every holiday season. There's some big recall, some big, some small. I, we've been involved in several of them. And there's a couple of articles evaluating not so much the side effects of lead, but where we might find lead uh, amongst our household products. So, Jen, tell us about a couple of these stories. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about a couple articles. Um, interesting um, uh, search for sources of where um, kids are potentially exposed to lead. Um, the first article is an evaluation of lead contamination in plastic toys collected from daycare centers in Las Vegas. Um, and this was published in 2010. Um, I won't, again, I won't go into the background of lead. And um, essentially, we know we know it's it has some uh, potentially irreversible neurotoxicity and delayed developmental um, effects in children. So it's obviously concerning. We want to minimize exposure as much as possible. So this study, the object objective was to determine the lead concentrations in plastic toys from various daycare centers in Las Vegas. Um, and compared to the standards set by the U.S. Uh, Consumer Protection Safety Commission that Zane mentioned earlier. And specifically, they wanted to look at two sources, um, lead stabilizers that are used in PVC plastic, and then also um, in lead chromate, which is used as a, is commonly used as a yellow color dye in, in plastics. Um, so they uh, contacted 200 um, daycare centers in, in the Las Vegas Valley, um, and a total of 10 volunteered to participate. So um, within these 10 um, daycare centers, um, they kind of categorized into a couple different groups. The first group was just simple repetitive shaped toys, um, like little blocks and animal figures, that type of thing. Um, and these were also, these were all, all colored, all various colors. The second category was um, realistic animals, toy animals. Third category was uh, plastic foods. And the fourth category was miscellaneous other, other toys. So they tested 10 to 15 toys per group um, at each of the 10 centers. And the way that they tested it was by a portable x-ray fluorescence device. Um, and the detection limit for this device is um, 10 parts per million for PVC and 2 parts per million for non-PVC plastic. Um, and then they also compared it to some, they calibrated the machine and compared it to a standard. Um, the toys themselves were tested for a duration of 10 seconds. Um, and if the toy was found to, to exceed the, um, the guideline uh, level for lead, um, which is greater than 600 parts per million, um, they took, a, took the toy and they did a one square inch proportion um, that was wiped with a ghost wipe to remove any surface dust. Um, and then th that portion of the toy was retested to determine if the lead um, was contained in the surface dust or if it was actually in the plastic. And then after that, if the concentration remained above 600 um, parts per million, they actually took the toy um, and removed it for future for, for additional testing. Essentially, which what they did was they again swabbed the surface with the ghost wipe and then did a um, an acid digestion in a, a microwave digester um, to detect um, uh, the potential uh, lead in the actual in the plastic. So the results: they tested 535 toys from all 10 daycare centers. Um, 29, 29 of the toys, which was equivalent to 5.4%, um, that came from seven of the 10 daycare centers contained elevated lev levels of lead above the 600 parts per million. 
Um, there were three centers who had no toys above the, the level. Um, the lead concentrations in the toys varied pretty pretty widely, anywhere from 620, 621 to over 8,000 parts per million. Um, and of those, 145 of the toys, or 27%, were PVC plastic. Um, 390 toys were non-PVC. And of the PVC toys, um, 20 of them contained elevated levels above the 600 parts per million. Um, and 15 had in intermediate lead uh, concentrations. Um, so the mean lead concentration for the PVC toys was 325 parts per million, and non-PVC was eight, 89 parts per million. And then looked at the, the relationship um, between PVC and the lead concentrations, and they did a, a chi-squared uh, uh, evaluation. They, found, they did find a strong relationship between having PVC as a substrate and then the, actual, the total lead concentration. Then they also looked at the, um, the yellow-colored toys. Um, of all the toys, 115 or 21% were yellow, um, and the rest were non-yellow. So the median lead concentration for the yellow toys um, was significantly higher than the non-yellow toys, 216 parts per million versus 24 parts per million. So there was definitely a strong relationship between the yellow toys and lead concentration as well. So then they um, did the ghost wipe evaluation. Um, of the wipes that were tested, three contained detectable concentration of lead, um, uh, which confirmed that there was which was pretty, it was a low concentration, so they uh, confirmed that there was no appreciable um, migration from the lead, uh, sorry, of the lead from the plastic substrate into the surface dust. Um, yeah, so overall, um, you know, they found that uh, PVC plastic and having a yellow colorant um, led to a more likely uh, risk of having an elevated lead concentration. So don't buy yellow toys. Don't buy yellow <laughs> PVC toys. <laughs> what about jewelry? Can we get jewelry for our kids and all that sort of stuff? Well, maybe the lead, maybe the yellow PVC toys would be a little bit better than the um, right. the jewelry. So the next article is um, contamination by ten harmful elements in toys and children's jewelry bought on the North American market. So this was um, done by a group out of Canada. So they actually used the EU limits for lead and other various um, metals. Um, as their standard and to compare. So as a quick background, um, a lot of the metals that we can get over um, at various uh, dollar stores and retail stores um, are often made of all different kinds of metal. and They can be made from recycled electronics and other things that could potentially have lead or cadmium, cadmium or other um, uh, potentially dangerous metals in them. So um, the goal of this study essentially was um, to determine the concentration or the elemental contamination of various uh, toys and jewelry. And they specifically wanted to look at the elements of arsenic, barium, cadmium, chromium, copper, manganese, nickel, lead, antimony, and selenium. And then they wanted to assess the bioavailability of these various elements um, by doing an in vitro um, gastrointestinal leaching procedure. So they divided their toys up into different categories. They had metallic toys and jewelry, plastic toys, and then toys with paint or coating. And then the last one was brittle, brittle or pliable toys. Um, 
So again, for the, the metal jewelry, um, um, they can have really high concentrations of, of one or more mm -hmm. metals. Cadmium has actually been used as a pretty cheap substitute for, for lead by manufacturers. And then, like I mentioned, the other uh, metals can come from leaded uh, electronic waste. Um, in the plastic category, um, again, this, this um, like mentioned in the other article, lead can actually be a contaminant and added to the um, PVC and plastic as a stabilizer. So that's another potential source. In the paints and coatings, we get worried because, you know, we all heard about leaded paint. Um, and that leaded paint can actually be used on toys as well. Well, it's not supposed to be, but it, do, it does get used in, in toys. Um, so that's a concern. So they did some scrapings and tested the, um, the painted toys. And then the last one was the, um, pro the pliable toys. This kind of represents um, Play-Doh, a carton, or, uh, like a cardboard puzzle and chalk, things that um, you would expect a child to put in their mouth more likely than other things. Um, so the, all the items that they bought, interestingly, like I said, were from dollar stores, toy shops, low-cost jewelry stores, retail chains, and on the internet. So when they looked at the metal content, they kind of did a couple different samples. Um, they kind of crushed and mixed some of the toys, and they did a little bit of acid digestion. Um, and then tested 24 metal, 24 toys in the metal category, 18 toys in the plastic category, 12 in the the pliable and 18, I'm sorry, uh, 12 in the painted and 18 in the pliable. And then like I mentioned, they ex tried to assess bioaccessibility essentially by doing an in vitro um, digestion with uh, sodium chloride, pepsin, bile, and pancreatin um, in a, a controlled pH to simulate both gastric and intestinal um, studies. Um, so, with their results, um, so like I mentioned, they compared their limits, what they found, excuse me, to the um, EU Toy Safety Directive. Um, and essentially what they found was that the large majority of the metal and jewelry category toys had exceeded multiple, exceeded the levels of multiple different um, metallic metals, um, but in the other categories, in each of the other categories, only one of the toys in each category had exceeded an EU level. So if we look at um, if we look at the metal content first of the metallic toys, because this is the this is the, the really the uh, group that was most concerning. Like I mentioned, 20 out of the 24 samples had at least one metal um, concentration that exceeded EU migration limits. The metal specifically that we uh, saw a really increased amount in um, was lead, cadmium, um, what were the other ones? Um, there was some arsenic, copper, and nickel. Those were the big, um, the big uh, metals that we saw. And in some of them, they actually exceeded the EU upper limit by several thousand times in, in a couple different of the toys. Um, the, uh, the extent of the lead contamination specifically, um, they, they compared to some other previously reported articles, and it was higher than, other, than some articles reported and lower than other articles reported. Um, so in general, it seems like there's, um, 
the use of lead, lead material in, as a source material is decreasing, um, but we are still seeing some use from recycled electronic waste um, as a source material. And in addition, we're seeing more cadmium as um, toy producers are turning away from lead and they're looking for cheap um, alternative substitutes. Um, so essentially with the metals, really you should, as far as recommendations, we really should keep all young children with the potential of mouthing behavior um, away from these metallic toys um, with any small parts or, or any expensive jewelry parts because they have a high risk of ingesting the metals and um, uh, potentially getting sick. Um, the, 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 they then looked at the metal content of plastic toys and essentially found that there was a little bit, um, there are two subsamples that were contaminated with arsenic and cadmium, but in general um, they had less um, metal contamination as would be this, uh, expected. They looked at the metal content of the toys with paint and coating. Um, only one of the 12 samples contained uh, metal concentration exceeding the EU limits. Um, so in general, they concluded that uh, the, the metal toys, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the paint, painted and coated toys pose a lower threat um, than compared to the metal jewelry toys. Um, and then with the pliable toys, again, this is the uh, Play-Doh and various things that are very tempting for kids to put in the mouth. Um, only one of 18 exceeded the upper limits. In general, this group had the lowest amount of metal contamination, um, but they're also at the highest risk of being ingested. But it's okay to eat Play-Doh. <laughs> as far as yes. lead content. As far as lead content, yes. That's good stuff. So there's still you know, plenty out there, again, kind of bought a bunch of toys from different places, and they have lead in the plastics and lead in the yellow paint and lead in the metal, and so just got to be careful where they come from. And I stumbled across this next article by complete accident, but I just, I just love this one. Um, you know, this to me is, is like the ad why you should buy a fresh-cut Christmas tree from Oregon, no matter where you're listening to this from. So tell us what not to do. All right. Yeah, this is a really fun article. It's um, Artificial tree, Christmas Trees, How Real Are the uh, Lead Exposure Risks? So this was published in the Journal of Environmental Health in 2004. So it's a little bit older, but probably still relevant, as I know there's a lot of um, artificial Christmas trees out there. Um, so essentially what um, this study wanted to do was to investigate... Um, the potential lead exposure from typical household usage of um, artificial Christmas trees. So they did two different experiments. The first one is that they took eight um, seven-foot artificial Christmas trees, which are um, essentially made from PVC uh, plastic. They took each one from a different manufacturer. Um, four were newly purchased, and the other four had been in residential use already for periods ranging anywhere from seven to 17 years. Tell us which authors. Which authors had to bring those out of their attics to right. get the, okay. Exactly. Okay. Um, so what they did is they took a sample of the needles um, cut from each of the trees, um, and then they also had they did a they did a, a little uh, test where they had someone wash their hands before. Um, then they would have the person assemble the tree, and then they would actually do swabs of the test or of the hands and see how much um, lead was on their hands. Um, and then they also, um, essentially, after they put the tree together, they set up the tree, 
um, and they left the tree up for four weeks and they did weekly wipes underneath the tree for any potential fall off from the tree, any lead fall off. Um, they also made it a point to say that it, it, they put these up on a north facing wall so there was no direct sunlight on the tree because we don't know if the direct sunlight would lead to more um, lead uh, falling off or exposure. Um, and then in the second experiment, um, they essentially sent, they put out an ad um, on an NBC News affiliate station and they sent out research kits to volunteers. So 127 households had volunteered. So the, each of these research kits contained uh, instructions, a research questionnaire, um, a sample identification la labels, a lab wipe, one plastic headspace vial, and a pair of lab gloves. So what they were instructed to do after they got the kit was that they were supposed to put on the gloves and then they uh, take out the wipe and wipe samples by applying pressure um, over a 30 centimeter section of the tree. And then they were supposed to do a second pass with the same wipe and fold it in a certain way and, and essentially pack it into the, to the uh, kit that they received. Um, and then they were supposed to answer a questionnaire um, that had various questions on, you know, how many children, what ages are in the household, um, how you handle the Christmas tree, who owns it, who made it, um, how old it is, all that kind of stuff. And then um, they asked what, they, what the participant would do if it was found to have high lead levels. Sell it on eBay. Yeah, exactly. Sell it on <laughs> eBay. Um, so in their, in their results, um, for that first experiment um, where they took their own trees and, and tested them, two, two of the trees had really high levels of lead. Um, but the lead levels in the other six trees were, were essentially not detectable. Um, and the two trees that had significantly high levels were the two trees that were older. So one was 17 years and one was 13 years. So clearly the older trees had been made with more lead and the, are, the trees this, you know, the newer trees that were bought um, were essentially undetectable lead levels. Um, Did they say where they'd been made too? They're all made in the United States. They're all American tree samples. And they have the, all the... Um, the manufacturers listed of all the different trees. Um, so, um, so then they looked at um, the fall off underneath the tree with the assumption that young children might fall or crawl underneath the tree um, and get it on their hands and put it in their mouth. Um, and they did various estimations of how much they thought that a child might get um, on their hands and how much they would ingest. Um, and essentially, after their, all their, their assumptions and conclusions, they thought it would take about 0.86 micrograms a day um, spread out over an entire year. So um, then they compared it to the California Prop uh, 65, which essentially which just requires a warning label if a, a product has an average daily lead level of 0.5 micrograms a day or greater. So the... Um, the one of the trees that was 13 years old um, gave off 0.42 uh, micrograms a day, which is just under the 0.5 micrograms a day. Um, and that was one of them that had the really significantly elevated level. Um, even the six trees that had non-detectable lead level um, did produce some lead uh, dust lead levels, um, a little bit elevated from background levels. 
so they probably did have some lead stabilizer in them. Um, but in general, they found that the lead exposure from assembly and disassembly would be pretty relatively minor um, compared with a, a, the probable risk of the child playing under the tree, and they could still get a, a decent exposure that way. So for the second one where they sent out this, the experiment where they sent out the souvenir or the uh, 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 questionnaire to the, to the uh, various people around the country, um, they found that 42 trees or 33% were observed to have detectable lead levels in the PVC uh, needles from the samples that people had sent back. Um, and 66%, so two-thirds of them had children living in the household. A lot of people didn't know what brand it was or how old it was. So there's potentially a lot of old trees out there with pretty significant lead in them. Um, lots were stored in the basement, some were stored in the attic. They considered this relevant because if it's in, in the attic, there's probably higher temperatures and they could potentially have different amount of lead exposures. Then they did a various, another assumption uh, calculation based on mouthing um, exposures if a child were to um, either to have hand-to-mouth transfer after crawling under the tree or handling the tree um, or actually just putting various parts of the tree in their mouth. Um, and they concluded that the worst case scenario um, involves a child who mouths 10 tree branches per day on trees that are 20 years old or greater and in addition handles a total of 300 centimeters of branch per day. Is it a child or a deer? <laughs> Um, and they estimated that for that particular child, their, their exposure would be 225 micrograms per day. So that would clearly be over the, um, the level, you know, at 0.5 micrograms per day. But obviously that's a pretty extreme scenario. So overall, it was a pretty um, fun study, I thought. Um, it, it, I think the older trees that we um, are potentially out there could have a pretty significant lead contamination and exposure risk. Yeah, it's kind of like anything that used lead in it, like lead Venetian blinds that can crack or anything. If you could place with it incessantly, you're going to be hand-mouth behavior and get lead in your mouth. I just thought it was kind of cool because it was a different thing and a seasonal thing. So don't buy, uh, don't buy an old uh, plastic Christmas tree from, uh, you know, your... From eBay. From eBay or your yeah. friends or anywhere else. So often they're passed down through the family. Family generations, so, yeah, heritage tree mm -hmm. thing, yeah. With increasing lead level. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, we were all just playing with these fun little uh, magnetic uh, balls here, yeah. which are made out of super um, magnet neodymium. So we have a trio of articles to uh, kind of talk about the risks of those. Those are also been around for just a short while and uh, always a, a significant hazard to, to children as well. So Xavier. So I'm Xavier Stacy. I'm a fourth-year medical student here at OHSU. Um, first, I'm going to talk about a little bit of background, and uh, then I'll delve into some content and contributions from these three papers. Um, so first of all, rare earth magnets, which uh, go into a lot of these products, um, are about five to ten times as strong as your traditional uh, iron magnets, the magnets that have been used uh, years prior to the 2000s more often, although these were invented in early 80s. Um, they go into toys, stress-relieving products, adult stress-relieving products, which uh, essentially equate to toys. 
appliances. Um, I have a I have a Sonic Airhead here today. Uh, sands the gross part that might have been used to brush teeth. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the bottom, you'll find a neodymium magnet there. Uh, tools, MRIs, uh, hybrid engines. Um, so, um, and what you see uh, also is it, it they go into jewelry, um, and you see a lot of inhalations and swallowing from ear, tongue, and nose jewelry, uh, sort of that allows people to have the jewelry, try to have your cake and eat your cake and have it too by um, making it look like you have a piercing and you don't. Um, obviously something that might be attracted to adolescents. Um, so in 2006, um, the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, um, changed the age from three years old as a safe safety measure to six years old on these products. And these products, of course, increased in prevalence throughout the 2000s toward this time. In 2007, they issued a warning after 33 cases of ingestion with at least 18 requiring surgery, common theme of the surgeries being uh, injuries with fistula, um, obstructions, perforations, usually due to swallowing by kids. Um, by 2008, there were greater than 200 cases. Um, in 2009, there was a ban on the sale to, uh, to persons younger than 14 years of age. Um, in the paper, they provide a picture of a neocube, also called a buckyball, and uh, luckily thanks to Alice, another medical student here, we have one here with us today. No ingestion so far, given our age demographic. Um, we, yeah, so <laughs> okay, so um, now they're commonly labeled adult only, not for kids when they're sold. Um, I actually was able to look online, and I know you can't see this, but what I have to show everybody here is a multicolored set of buckyballs that have actually been shaped into a mug, so you can oh. mind drinking and bring them as close to your mouth as possible, and perhaps as an adult, contribute to an unrepresented demographic um, by scanning some magnets. Um, anyway, so that being the background, I'll delve into the first paper. first paper's title is Prevalence, Clinical Features, and Management of Pediatric Magnetic Foreign Body Ingestions, Journal of Emergency Medicine, 2012, by Tavares et al. from the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh. There were no disclosures. It's a retrospective chart review at a, the single institution examining prevalence, clinical presentation, and ED management of um, magnetic foreign body ingestions. Out of 338,000 presentations to the pediatric ED, um, um, let's see here. I believe this was over the course of, I'm not telling you the years here. I'm like six sure. years. Six years, 2003 to 2009. They had 338,000 presentations to pediatric ED, of which 38 represented magnetic foreign body ingestions. Big classification here, single versus multiple, um, for intuitive reasons. You get a single in there, and it might just pass through. Uh, you get multiple in there, and they're going to start talking to each other more than likely as they pass through. So, 30 single uh, foreign body ingestions were seen, uh, 8 multiple. Um, magnets in total represented 1.97% of all foreign body ingestions. So, um, in examining, their, they, they provide us with a series of tables. One of the first tables they provide us with, entitled Demographic Symptoms and Complications of Patients with Single versus Multiple Magnetic Foreign Bodies. Um, they tell us a little bit about uh, mean age uh, for single and multiple. Uh, for single is about five years old, multiple nine years old. Um, again, I've already mentioned there were 30 single and eight multiple ingestions, uh, eight, eight patients with multiple ingestions. Um, the age range was 1.4 to 11 for singles, 3 to 13 for multiples. Um, male sex uh, predominates for some reason amongst the, uh, uh, or actually, I should say there's 63% of the single ingestions were male, 38% of the multiple. And um, let's see, 8 of the 30 in the single ingestions were symptomatic, 7 of 8 in the multiples were symptomatic. So you see, that's the real, that's a real kicker right there because you got 87%, 7 out of 8 
um, symptomatic with the multiple conditions. You can see why that category is why that's a big category categorization. Um, surgical complications: zero in the single uh, ingestions, and four out of eight in the multiple ingestions had what they call surgical complications. I feel compelled to. Uh, talk about this phrase, surgical complications. I usually think about it as complications resulting from surgery. What this really means here is that they had to go to surgery. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that being said, um, four cases of, in the single ingestions, there were four cases of invasive intervention. What happened was they had radiographic evidence of a lack of migration, essentially like an impaction at the esophagus or pylorus. So they went in with an endoscope and tried to take that out. And um, they also um, used the, and, and these were essentially, they're, they're generally successful. They, like I said, there were no, no what they call surgical complications. They also used language, coalescent magnets. And I think that's language that they're referring to when perhaps there are multiple ingestions, but they all kind of like turn into one foreign body, right? Mm -hmm. So there's some language for us too. So in the multiples, the range of magnets was two to six magnets ingested. Um, they give us some specific symptoms. Uh, let's see here. Some specific characteristics of cases, a table entitled Characteristics of Cases with Surgical Complications for the four, um, let's see, for the four, for the four of eight multiple ingestions who, that resulted in surgeries. Um, they have, uh, uh, let's see here, and these four cases are discussed in depth um, here, but I'll break down the eight really quick because I think it's interesting. One was asymptomatic. Two were sent home after uh, uh, they after an idea of one foreign body in the stomach, and they didn't present again. Um, and I, you can assume that the multiple ingestion there came from the history. Uh, one had colonoscopic removal, and then um, four out of eight four out of eight had essentially what amount to peritonitis like symptoms, and um, it required the operative removal. And so um, here in this table, we've got, for instance. They list age 13-year-old male who swallowed two magnets in a jewelry chain, abdominal radiography findings, SBO with free air, intraoperative course, small bowel perforation, jejunal resection. I mean, these are really serious things that you're having to be done to get these things out of there because of the damage. And then they do talk about potentially pertinent conditions, in this case involving um, childhood psychiatric conditions, ADHD, PTSD, autism, which seems to be a common theme. One other distinction they make in here, which turns out to be a nothing, but I'll mention it briefly, is they discuss pre and post 2006 distinction. 2006 was when CPSC issued that warning. There were 15 cases uh, pre warning, 23 post. Seems like they went up after the warning, but there's this is a, a, a dubious distinction. So, um, quickly summarizing the four cases that required surgery. Um, case one was a 14 year old boy with ADHD presented with uh, intermittent uh, epigastric abdominal pain for ingestion of two magnets and a jewelry chain 10 days prior to his presentation. He had an abdominal film, um, also it uh, looks like some, some fluoroscopy, and it was, as the authors put it, they say that they thought the foreign body was in the transverse colon. Um, so he was treated conservatively with upper endoscopy, got no love there, he got some PEG, um, his obst, um, his pain resolved without passage, he was DC'd home, he failed the follow-up. Five weeks later, abdominal pain again, he presents with abdominal pain again, gets PEG, an outpatient X-lap was scheduled. Kid failed to appear. Nine months later, post-ingestion, he's in the operating room, 60 centimeters of judgment comes out, and the magnets are out. For whatever reason, the author's opinion was it's a mixed original and subsequent ingestion. I'm not sure if that's hedging for a potentially bad call in the initial film, but if we go to the pick and look, if you, if you call up the paper, um, it's, it's, a, 
it's an interesting read, kind of picturing where these uh, where these foreign bodies are. These look like the sort of like longer magnetic toys that people play with, along with the second foreign body there. But you definitely see the the air fluid um, levels and uh, what looks like something that you would definitely get a, a surgical consult for. Case two, five-year-old girl, 18 days post-ingestion with vomiting, diffuse abdominal pain, rebound, guarding, um, decreased bowel sounds, afebrile. Now, one of the things you see here is this diffuse abdominal pain. In the previous case, one of the things you might have noticed is, or I hope I highlighted a little bit, is that as the, as the kid kept presenting, his symptoms kept getting worse and more diffuse and more peritonitis-like. And so um, what we see here is a kid who's already got diffuse abdominal pain, which is four densities in the abdominal film, surgery with several ileal perforations with four magnets and two balls performed 20 centimeters of ileal resection. She had a two-week hospitalization. Um, and of course, we have another picture here where they show us um, the uh, segment that was uh, removed, um, as well as uh, the, the linear magnets, as well as, which are essentially like sticks of plastic with magnets on either end as well as the steel balls that are magnetic. Last, uh, third case, 12-year-old uh, boy with uh, ADHD and PTSD with diffuse tenderness. Uh-oh. Rebound, guarding. Film shows small object, dilating loops, air fluid level. I'm pressing the kid changes his story from one ingestion to two balls that he ingested. That's a big one, too, right? we got to make sure we get the correct right story. So high suspicion. X-Lab, perforations, repair, recovery. Okay, we got another picture here showing us what actually looks a little less like um, a magnetic ball, a little more like something else, but the, the objects are kind of overlapped here in the picture. But you definitely see dilated loops of bowel, signs of obstruction. Um, and despite the bowel looking nice and pink, you can see these areas where it's kind of cinched together by these magnets, and it looks a little, but a, lot, a little more than a little inflamed. So, bottom line, uh, neodymium boron iron magnets, very strong. Um, and their, their bottom line, one magnet ingestion appears no worse than ingestion than any other foreign body simply for its magnetism. And that, that is, is borne out a bit here in the papers, although we have to consider, of course, um, external influences. Maybe a metal belt buckle, maybe a swallowed coin, maybe they need to go in the MRI. So um, multiple magnetic ingestions uh, associated with a high rate of what they call surgical complication it should raise suspicion for associated complications, obstruction, fabulous, fistula adhesions, that kind of stuff. And um, they, they also point out the psychiatric conditions complicating, so of course, more than likely uh, the history of uh, certain behavioral things. So, um, and let's see what else. Um, they also, let's see here, for their approach recommendations, they universally recommend for a multiple ingestion, early removal, if it's in the upper portion of GI endoscopy, if it's in the lower X-lap, either way you're consulting somebody. Uh, for a single OPS, repeat films in a few hours to see advanced, if that's advanced from the GI, or immediate endoscopic removal if that's possible. Um, they also provide us with an algorithm. I'm going to hold off on talking about that algorithm um, because I've got another paper with another algorithm too, and let's, let's do a little tiny bit of comparison later, so I'm going to go ahead and move on to um, another paper, Rare Earth, titled Rare Earth Magnet Ingestion Related Injuries Among Children, um, 2000 to 2012. It's in clinical pediatrics, uh, 2013 is the publication date by Ru et al. It's multi-institution authors from all over the place. Uh, they made no disclosures. They did is they got data on patients 15 years old or less called from two Consumer Product Safety Commission databases for 2000-2012. One of the databases consisted of reports from consumers, and one consisted of injury incidents reported to CPSC that underwent IDIs, or in-depth investigations. 
Uh, it resulted in 72 case studies. 72% uh, had an IDI of those 72 case studies that were in that second database. I'm sorry, 72 case studies overall, and 72% of this overall 72 from both databases had an IDI. So they note their limitations this approach, perhaps not capturing all the incidents, because uh, obviously these are things that were reported um, uh, by consumers or uh, uh, through an uh, um, injury incident reported to CPSC. Um, they highlight the utility of being in, uh, being in three quarters of the cases having IDIs, though those in-depth reports. So they, they think that's the strength of their study. Um, they repeat a lot of what we've seen already. Um, they add that three to six millimeter diameter magnets can attract through up to six layers of bowel wall. That's, that's amazing, right? Um, they summarize that you get pressure ulcers, ischemia, um, obstructions, fistula perforations. Um, um, and they note this uh, two-year-old, there was a fatality of a two-year-old due to sepsis that led to the uh, voluntary recalls by the CPSC in the first place. So, um, and, and this is really just like a, this is a data mining exercise here. They purport to add a lot of things uh, about delays in treatment, reasons for delay, treatment details, the mechanism of ingestion, length of hospital stay, whether the ingestion was witnessed, and the owner of the magnets, who, who, who had the magnets. So, um, so you know, maybe it's an older sibling, maybe it's a child themselves. Um, so anyway, we look at some of these charts. Um, we see, for instance, and, and, and I'll just go by the figures and, and uh, add a little bit here and there. So in the first figure, it's um, age on the, uh, the x-axis uh, and number of children on the y-axis. And so what we see is a mean age 6.4 years, a median of 6.5 years, and a mode of 8 years old that's 15.3% being around 8 years old. It's a little bit bimodal with early and late uh, kind of. Um, and um, uh, the peaks being 2 to 4, 8 to 10 in that bimodal distribution with ingestions into the teenage years. It was all up to 15 years old. Um, and they noted that disclosure from teenage patients may be difficult. Um, there was one girl that talked about twice, I think, who had a classmate who actually was injured before she came, came out and said, hey, look, I swallowed some of this too. Um, so then um, we can go to, in the first table here, um, they discuss uh, a few different um, circumstances of magnetic ingestion by gender. Um, and, and note that and some of the notable stuff here is there's a two to one prevalence of uh, girls to boys in um, the swallowing faux piercings. So um, it might be you know, correlated. I know what you're waiting on. And um, they also look at uh, you know, who, who mistook it more for candy, ingestions, uh, and then using the teeth or mouth to just carry or separate the magnets. So maybe people are just sort of playing with these with their mouth a little bit. Um, they have outcomes in table two, clinical outcomes of magnet ingestion by gender. Uh, some of the interesting things there, um, two to one, uh, or sorry, 14 women had, or, or girls had uh, uh, no adverse effects, eight boys had no adverse effects. Um, and then uh, two to one, men to women, with multiple perforations and uh, necrosis. So the effects in the boys are much more serious here um, for the 23 who had multiple perforations and necrosis. Um, let's see. So then we get a figure on, um, let's see here. I might just get to figure two. Let's discuss that quickly. So they have something about number of children and number of magnets ingested. Um, it was unspecified into nine of them, but uh, it looks the highest seemed to be between uh, one and four. Two and, but between two and four, you have 44%. So it seems like there's a, at least half or ingesting about two to four magnets. All right. Then we have some tables on delay in... Uh, Let's see here. 
Okay, so I want to discuss table three. So treatment and outcome of children injured by ballistic <laughs> magnets. Um, here we have uh, out of, out of 66 out of the 72 were specified. Um, 46 under some underwent surgery. Um, 11 had uh, excision of intestinal segments. Only 14 passed the uh, passed the uh, magnets naturally, and uh, and five endoscopic or colonoscopic, colonoscopic removal was possible. Um, then we have some data on hospital stays. Uh, 53 out of the 72 cases were admitted. Um, 31 stays were documented for duration, and and, and several. Uh, let's see here. Some of them were designated as several, but hospital stays um, are here. And I don't know. They sort of like they don't. Uh, there's nothing really notable here except for the this data. Um, and then let's see here. What else do I want to tell you about? All right. So. Some other sort of esoterica from here quickly, 69 out of 72 actually ID'd the product they were using. 34 out of 69 were actually intended for children. So we're talking about 35 of them being adult, you know, probably stress relieving type of toys or something like that. Uh, among teens, 16 of 18 were for adult use and um, probably jewelry, um, but you know, that was unspecified. Um, and um, and two-thirds reported whether or not the ingestion was witnessed. In only one case was it witnessed. So, um, okay, what else do I want to say here? Um, in seven out of 72 cases, an attempt was made to prevent or separate the child from the person using the toy or goods, throw them out of reach, play on a surface that would collect the toy, like putting it all on a blanket and wrapping it up so it didn't fall somewhere where someone didn't see it and then have the kid come along with it. Uh, so that, was, that's, that, that might um, give a little indication about the gap in education um, between um, people who own these things and what we're sitting here and learning about right now. Um, and uh, in the discussion, they note that 80 or 90% of these, these things do spontaneously pass. 1% um, require surgery. Um, but with, um, with oh, I'm sorry, 80 to 90% of regular foreign bodies that are swallowed do pass. Only 1% require surgery. But with magnets, in these cases, of course, these 72 cases, these were, you know, the cases that I reported, 70% required surgery, and only 20% passed spontaneously. Um, All right, so yeah. tell us, yeah. how, how we manage them now? When the kids come in the door, or they give us a phone call? And, Absolutely. You know, um, in a way, almost similar to the battery story, but... Uh, yeah, the, um, and so the Tavares paper gave us a very brief algorithm for looking at these things. Um, and then uh, there was a second, another paper that gave a broad, broad algorithm. So um, the Tavares algorithm, essentially breaking it down, look at whether it's, uh, you know, get a history, categorize a single or multiple, um, see if there are signs of multi of, or symptoms of intestinal obstruction. You're looking at films here. Um, if there's obstruction, if it's multiple, if it's a multiple ingestion, if, it's con if the, the, the films are consistent with multiple ingestion, you're getting a console, surgical, endoscopic. Um, if, if everything is consistent with a single ingestion, you can discharge with close follow-up through serial, uh, through serial um, radiographs. So this next paper is Management of Ingested Magnets in Children, Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition 2012, who sent it all multi, authors from multiple institutions, no disclosures. And what happened here is they basically, um, at, large, at a large conference for the um, National Association of National Society, North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. Um, they called this a clear and present danger in 2012. They task force together and put together an algorithm. Um, 
One of the other things they did, which I think is worth very diverse mentioning quickly, is just in, they made endoscopy guidelines. So they mentioned that Roth nets are useful unless you have multiple uh, magnets, in which case you might want to use things like um, snares, baskets, or multi-pronged multi forceps. Um, and that hinge devices tend to be poor at grasping these things. So anyway, and then the broader, the broader algorithm here um, that they've provided, uh, it's sort of, it's like you took Tavares and expanded on it, it seems like here. Um, you're getting a history, um, and uh, especially looking for unexplained GI symptoms with rare earth magnets in the child's environment. We put it here, getting an x-ray, um, and then trying to figure out, of course, again, categorizing single or multiple magnet ingestions. And then location becomes very important in looking at um, your options for, uh, like for instance, in a single magnet ingestion, your options for consult with a gastroenterologist for endoscopy, perhaps get it out if it's in the upper portions of GI, versus following with serial x-rays. Um, and um, it, it, they do note some important other aspects um, uh, besides, uh, besides, besides um, sorry, going back to the history briefly, do note also that um, these are very small, and so you might not get the choking, gagging, or drooling that you might expect to. But, okay, so single magnets, those are, that's the approach. It's very similar to um, what was in Tavares. Uh, serial films, you might use laxatives. Um, they note the hazards that we mentioned earlier, like, for instance, avoiding clothes with metallic buttons and buckles and buckles, things like that. Um, for multiple magnets, um, again, they look at location, all within the stomach or esophagus versus beyond the stomach, um, and um, with some sort of uh, more intuitive outcomes here, if they're successful removal, discharge them home with follow-up and education, um, unsuccessful removal, going to surgery, that kind of thing. Um, so, um, let's see here. Another last important point they mentioned was um, injury can happen within... Um, since the way they put it was, uh, even if these magnets are quickly removed from the gastric lumen with prompt <clears throat> endoscopy, our experience demonstrates that ulceration and indentation of the mucosa may occur in less than eight hours. And they provided a picture of that kind of ulceration. And they mentioned that greater than 12 hours have more, uh, those, those with, uh, you know, with, with injuries that are linger longer than 12 hours have more complications. No conclusion on laxatives, but positive language about PEG. It speeds passage and preps for colonoscopy. So... Um, great uh, approach here. So if you, if you get your patient history, figure out whether it's single or multiple, get some films, find out where it is, figure out whether you need to consult surgery, get it out of there, get some follow-up. All right. Good. Kind of a longer um, journal club than usual, but uh, well, we, uh, I think the key points for both the batteries and the magnets are time is of the essence. With the batteries, time is really important. You've got to get them out really quick, find them really quick, don't delay. You know, as far as poison center referral, if they're in a vicinity of a children's hospital, they probably ought to be directed directly to the children's hospital because that's where they can react the quickest. The magnets, histories again are unreliable. Kids tell you they swallowed one and you get an x-ray and there's more than one, or they suddenly opt to swallowing two when pressed for it. So if they're in the stomach or retrievable and there's more than one that you get them. Otherwise, once there's two, you have a tough choice of watching them carefully and not waiting for them to kind of return on their own. It's sort of that one person didn't return, but um, really watching them in the hospital to make sure they don't develop this closed loop obstruction with the magnets that would require a more invasive surgery to, to retrieve them. 
So these are now all banned as toys by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. This that second article you talked about was sort of one of their charges is to investigate harmful objects, and that's one of the things that they did. Um, but you can go on the internet today and buy them, not as toys for a variety of companies. So they are out there just because they're banned for toys. It just means you can't go down to Toys R Us and get them, basically. Yeah. So with that, we'll, we'll wrap it up for the year. And uh, we'll let everybody know that we'll see you back here in uh, January. And until then, have a... Uh... <laughs> 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 We're going to sing this together. Ross, <laughs> 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 All right. Till January.